Hello, Podwalkers, and welcome to another episode of the Goblin Lore Podcast. Uh, today, we're, we want to revisit a topic we covered in the past, Quark and the Gambler's Fallacy. Our previous episode on that was uh, number 49, which was posted over a year ago in uh, August of last year. Um, let's get to our opening question and our introductions, but let's start by introducing a returning guest who we're very excited to ha- talk to again. Markish, would you like to introduce yourself? Since you asked so nicely, uh, yes, I'm uh, Orcish Librarian, or people who know me uh, through the tweeters uh, may know me as Bibliovor Orc, because that's uh, where I tend to clutter up people's experiences. I, I, it's, it's been alleged, um, but it's never been proven. Um, <laughs> zero, zero convictions, as it says on my dating profile. So, you know, we're, we're, I'm not going to give any, any more credence to those rumors. Yeah, you 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 don't want to slip up this early in the cast and admit to anything. <laughs> no, and I, I know this is being recorded too, so I have to be very careful uh, about what I say, lest it come back at me in an evidentiary manner later. Yeah, I, I mean, I know when we had Gavin on, we were worried that he might slip, but you, you know, this this is even this would be even bigger than that. <laughs> I, there are already enough libraries that I'm not allowed into anymore that I don't want to. I don't want to have to move again. <laughs> So welcome back, and we have a question for you for today. It is, what is your favorite coin flip card? Okay, I had to think hard about this, and I'm I'm tempted to sort of cheat because I'm going to tell you the one, the two that I almost picked. Um, I almost picked uh, <laughs> chance a encounter. This, show. <laughs> <laughs> like, this is like how Alex answers every single question. Awesome. Uh, so so I almost picked chance encounter, which is the the red enchantment that gives you the alternate win condition if you can win enough coin flips. Uh, because I'm a sucker for build around cards, and I'm a sucker for alternate win conditions. Um, so that that is essentially laser targeted at my interests. Um, but I figure most people probably already know Chance Encounter, so I decided I was going to pass on that. I almost picked uh, Goblin Festival uh, to be topical about, <laughs> which is one of my sort of like sneaky, weird EDH cards that I think people don't know about that, that I like to bring up every now and again. Uh, and Goblin Festival is another red enchantment that in this case lets you spend uh, two colorless and flip a coin um, to deal one damage to any target. And if you lose the flip, you have to give control of Goblin Festival to uh, an opponent. Um, so it's chaotic enough to begin with, but it gets even more chaotic when you realize that you can stack as many of those coin flips as you have mana to pay with. And it doesn't matter if in the process of resolving those flips, you lose control of the enchantment, you hand it over and then keep resolving all the flips that are on the stack. So you can create very chaotic, uh, board (laughs) situations. If you have a lot of people, uh, with spare mana and a desire to see the world burn, (laughs) Um, but the, the card I, I settled on uh, that flavorfully fits Goblin Festival like that really. Yeah. yeah. And, and the, the flavor, and the flavor text says, uh, what are we celebrating again? Uh, and the oh. answer is doesn't matter. So yeah, it's, and it's, 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 uh, yeah, we've got, and that's some great art on that too. Uh, yeah. by, is that, is that Jeff Lobenstein? I believe so. Yes, it is. Yeah. Um, uh, but the card I landed on, uh, which I'm going to pick is, uh, Crooked Scales which is an artifact from Mercadian Masks, which was kind of the the point in my life when I was playing the most magic, uh, was like doing masks triple drafts uh, twice a week. So I really timed my magic poorly in terms of uh, building a valuable <laughs> card collection. Uh, but If you got foils from masks, you could have been in good shape. <laughs> no, but I have an entire box full of stinging barriers that I happily first picked, <laughs> um, which unfortunately did not appreciate in value. 
Um, but Cricket Scales is an artifact for four colorless uh, that you can pay for and tap. Choose target creature you control and target creature an opponent controls. Flip a coin. If you win the flip, destroy the creature that the opponent controls. If you lose the flip, destroy the creature that you control, unless you pay three mana <laughs> and reflip the coin. Uh, and, and the art shows a pair of scales um, and one side on the right side, uh, the person holding that, that right side of the scale has their finger uh, on the pan to, to sort of cheat the balance. And so to me, I, I love the flavor on this card. And it, it's a very, it's, it's a masks era card and it sort of fits with like the corrupt, you know, mercantile government that happened in mass block, but it also to me has a very Orzov feel to it. And I, I kind of love the idea that you could reprint this uh, in a Ravnica set as an Orzov card and put some Orzov flavor on that too. Awesome. Uh, Alex, do you want to go next? Um, sure. <clears throat> so I'm Alex. Found on Twitter at Alexander. Not I'm listening. To old cast got my old Twitter. Found <laughs> on Twitter at Mel underscore Chronicler. Um, and so I think I'm just going to take like what I consider the low hanging fruit, which isn't always, but I'm gonna say squeeze revenge because oh, yes. mm. it's just one of the best examples of squeeze superpower as i like to call it um being underestimated and <laughs> this is this is when he kills um was this urtai like by accident like yeah. corrupted phyrexianized corrupted urtai yep um i just yeah. i love it and the art is just amazing because the look on squeeze face is panicked as he's like accidentally causing an entire avalanche of debris to fall onto Urtai who has no idea it's coming. Squee basically has two facial expressions. He has happy um, like when he's holding you know the the squeeze toy and then he has panicked like in uh, Crumbling Sanctuary and and this card. And sad and his dead (laughs) body lying in front of you know Krovax and stuff. That's also fun too. Poor Squee. Suppose I could say what the card actually does too. Oh yeah, Um, it's just (laughs) uh, one red blue for a sorcery. Choose any or choose a number. Flip a coin that many times, or until you lose, uh, whichever comes first. If you win all the flips, draw two cards for each flip. So uh, for me, so I'm Hobbs Q. He him. I can be found on Twitter at Hobbs Q. And. The, the, I had a really difficult time with this question. I am actually in the process of rebuilding a coin flip deck. And especially now that Quark the Thumbless is out, who we're I'm <laughs> sure we're going to talk about today. When that card got spoiled, I was just like, well, I guess that coin flip wheels deck that I was building with just like Niv-Mizzet or somebody random is now going to become Kark and Sakashima. Um, because <laughs> when the I, universe just drops a news peg into your lap. It was it was beautiful. And, and when Sakashima got spoiled on top of it, and I realized that I could try to build mechanized production Kark's thumb <laughs> just just to add it in and just see how many thumbs I could actually give Kark because of the gambling. Um, Oops, all thumbs. <laughs> he's all thumbs. He's thumbless, but he's all thumbs. I mean, it's like, so, uh, so I had a difficult time because I love coin flip cards. I always have. I love kind of trying to cheat. Um, the randomness, which is why Kark's Thumb is a cool card. But I settled um, on Fiery Gambit because when I had my original coin flip deck, Fiery Gambit was always just, it was it was really just a fun card because you would try to copy it, obviously, multiple times. So if people don't know, Fiery Gambit is from Mirrodin. 
It is a sorcery that you flip a coin until you lose a flip or choose to stop flipping. If you lose, no effect. But if you win one or more, you deal three damage to a creature. If you win two or more, six to each opponent. If you win three or more, draw nine cards and untap <laughs> all the lands you control. I I feel like there's an unwritten line of rules text on all of these coin flip cards, too, that say, you know, until someone chooses to stop, which is don't choose to stop. Right. Like, that's... <laughs> <laughs> what, why are you if, if you're playing this you've you you are already ride or die on coin flips like just yeah well if you it. have a chance to counter out right you know like go for it yeah you're trying to just you're just trying to get that i mean that's why it was great when they uh took like frenetic afrit so that you could stack those again yeah. um so but like i i at least i i really was close to choosing uh boom pile and that was actually more to do with the um, flavor text on it. So boom pile is flip a coin. If you win the flip, destroy all non-land permanents. It's an artifact for four and it's fuses. We have more than enough. Now, which one was it? Fleerin, <laughs> one eye goblin engineer. <laughs> so also just pretty appropriate for this cast in general. And I would say that there are a fair number of goblin or goblin related cards that go with coin flipping. And I think that it, mm -hmm. it makes a lot of sense. And Clark being kind of we, we, so we're coming off of doing our Commander Legends episodes. We just got Clark kind of handed to us with a little bit more story than we ever had, and it's a great time to kind of revisit a topic, Alex, that you and Joe did when I couldn't be there. Yeah, yeah, it's it's I'm so glad and and thank you, Orkish, because you reached out to us to to do this episode, and it, it was some really good timing because we were talking, we've been talking about this for a little while. And then Quark was, came out what a week, <laughs> two weeks before we decided to record this. Like a yeah. sign from on high or from Renton, Washington as the case may be. Yeah. So just, that is really cool. I, I do want to just quickly say, you know, talk about revisiting topics. Cause now that the, the cast is about two years old, we're starting to kind of come back to some of the things we've talked about before. Um, and this is, you know, when we find a topic like this, especially this is one where we can bring, you know, both Hobbs and you, Orkish, to talk about this thing that to bring new perspectives to it, and, which is great. And there's more to talk about. We have more story for Quark. We have a card for Quark. Um, but also, like, there are topics that are just good to revisit every so often. And so I think this is a thing that will start to happen. I mean, we've got plenty of other new, new things to hit, but I think as time goes on, we're going to be revisiting topics as we find good times and, and reasons to come back. Mm -hmm. So with that, um, do you want to start talking about Quark? Cause I know uh, Orkish cause Hobbs and I got a chance to talk about it in our, our last episode about commander legends. Yeah, so I mean, we're, for for people who aren't familiar with uh, Clark, um, a, a character who previously uh, was known only for his uh, thumbs, uh, which at the time that they were introduced to us were no longer attached uh, to the rest of him. <laughs> um, and so we first we got uh, Clark's thumb, and then we got Clark's other thumb, um, and so now finally we have Clark uh, the thumbless. <laughs> And the the sort of story brief that came out for Clark uh, with um, Commander Legends uh, tells us that he was a high rolling gambler who lived in the Oxidan Mountains of Mirrodin, who lost both of his thumbs uh, betting on a Hellion race, including his luckiest thumb. 
And I love multiple things about that. We're two sentences in, and I love multiple things about this already. Uh, the first of which being that it, it implies that Clark already had a thumb, which he considered to be luckier than the other thumb. Um, it doesn't tell us which of the thumbs it was, but apparently he had not just a lucky thumb, but a luckier thumb. Um, and I feel like we already get a sense for for Clark, which is that he is what probably in today's uh, modern Earth society we would consider a problem gambler. <laughs> um, in the sense that he appears to uh, be making wagers that he can't afford to lose. Um, so really, you know, how much we should be laughing at him, I guess, is open to question. He he could use some help. Uh, but Clark uh, lost I both think his. This- th- Unfortunately, I got to say, I think you're assuming he doesn't have other thumbs. <laughs> I've already contended that on multiple times, this is my latest conspiracy, is that he had the thumb. He could make that bet. Well, well, and so, yeah, well, so this is this is the story bit we get is that is that um, Kirk then, after losing both of his thumbs betting on the Hellion race, bets Dirk a thumb that he can walk to the center of Mirrodin and back. And when Dirk points out that Kirk uh, doesn't have any thumbs left, uh, Kirk tells him that he's good for it. And Dirk apparently takes him on his word for this. See, um, so, <laughs> you know, it, it, so <laughs> he, he, now, I guess Clark it, didn't say it was his thumb that he had at that point. I guess so. It, it it certainly lends some credence to your theory that he, it, at the very least, had a reputation as a guy who could get a thumb. Right, because, <laughs> because the person to whom the person to whom he's already lost all of these bets is willing to take his word that he's good for another thumb, despite clearly being thumbless at this point. Um. <laughs> See, and I just this asks this poses all sorts of questions about goblin bookie society on this plane yeah. too. About why are why thumbs are a particular <laughs> uh, stake that you put down on bets. Uh, I, I really appreciate the nod to the unsets there. It, yeah, and yeah. and it raises as many questions as it answers, which I always appreciate. Um, and given that, that flavor text is one of my obsessions. I have to call out uh, the wonderful flavor text on, on Clark the Thumbless, which just says uh, double or nothing. So we, we mentioned a little bit uh, when we did this on our Commander Legends is that this is great too because it's a nod to the um, unsets to silver-bordered world. Yep. So it's kind of cool that they pulled it together. So It, it, it makes me think of uh, the, the line in uh, Like a Rolling Stone by Bob Dylan where he says, uh, if you ain't got nothing, you got nothing to lose. Yeah, <laughs> and that's that's clearly where Clark finds himself, and and it you know to, to sort of preview a topic which hopefully we'll come back to later. It, it reminds me of a classic uh, gambling for resurrection situation. Um, in this case, try to get your thumbs back after you've already lost all your thumbs. Do you want to I mean, it, to be fair, what that is? He, he did end up getting his thumb back. Uh, yeah. So uh, just briefly, um, gambling for resurrection is a phenomena of of human behavior, which was uh, described as part of uh, prospect theory, which is sort of the the network of uh, heuristics and theories that, that Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky described um, based on their studies of human behavior and human decision-making behavior. Um, and without going too deeply into that, um, that's something that for anybody who's interested in human behavior in decision making or real you know really just sort of the human experience that's that's a subject that repays study um and so i always recommend to people daniel kahneman's book which is called thinking fast and slow and was kind of a, a crossover hit in like the business book community and whatnot uh, a couple of years ago uh, michael lewis's book the undoing project uh is sort of a history of of kahneman and tversky's work um but prospect theory 
deals with how human beings make decisions uh, under conditions of uncertainty and sort of the ways in which human behavior occasionally deviates from what economists would call, you know, rational utility maximizing behavior. And two of the sort of big points that undergird most of prospect theory are the notions that losses loom larger than gains. Um, as human beings, we hate losing something more than we like getting an equivalent amount. Losses hurt us more than gains make us happy. And the other piece of that is that the marginal impact of any loss or gain diminishes the further out you get away from our starting conditions. So if I win $1,000, that's worth more to me psychologically than if I win a second $1,000. And so if you combine these two sort of functions of human decision-making, you, you run into a phenomenon which Kahneman and Tversky called gambling for resurrection, which is that if you start losing, you know, you can imagine this literally as a gambling game, but this applies to all, you know, aspects of human behavior. If you start losing and you find yourself in that domain of losses, as they would call it, the, any future losses that you might suffer as a consequence of continuing to take increasingly long chances and losing loom less large than the losses that you've already suffered and the prospect of somehow making good on those losses. And so you observe this behavior in people that once they find that they start losing, they'll start taking increasingly long gambles and increasingly desperate risks in an effort to get back what they've already lost. So you so have this the, concept of chasing, gambling for resurrection. Yeah, you start chasing the money. You know, it's like if you're sitting at the blackjack table and you've lost, you know, four or five hands in a row, you you start betting more. Yeah, point, every casino in the back. world, you'll observe this behavior. And, mm -hmm. and it, you know, we do this in all aspects of our lives. Like you can think of, you know, imagine being in a relationship, which is, you know, a, a unhealthy relationship, but the lengths to which people will go to to somehow try to turn that relationship around, despite the fact that it's not working for them. Um, you can look, this happens all the time in warfare. You know, you can look at the the Battle of the Bulge and the final German offensive in World War II as an example of gambling for resurrection, taking a desperate chance that was not likely to succeed in an effort to somehow reverse all the gains that the opposing side had made to that point. Um, you can look at, uh, if, for people who've seen the, the James Bond movie, Casino Royale, there's a scene early in that movie where James Bond is playing poker with one of the, er, not not the final villain, but one of the early villains in the movie. And the villain has been losing at poker. And finally, he bets the keys to his car, his, his beautiful Aston Martin, this, this beautiful car. He bets the keys to his car on a poker hand in an attempt to try to win back the money that he's already lost. And if you stop and think about it, there's no chance that he's ever going to bet his car on the first hand of that game. It's in risk. You wouldn't do it. But he's so deep in the hole at that point that he's in that gambling for resurrection mode. And he's going to take this this really outrageous risk in an attempt to get back what he's already lost. And, and so I kind of see that here with Kark. <laughs> Kark yeah. Just taking these increasingly desperate gambles to try to get back his thumbs. Yeah, well, this what, is the thing we see in fiction a lot too. Like any, any casino movie, any heist movie, you're gonna, Well, maybe not any, but a lot of those, you'll, you'll see this trope. You yeah. Know, you're you're, you're, in, you're like, in too deep. You have to do just yeah. one more. Yeah, and that's related to the sunk cost fallacy. Then it yeah. sounds like just. I mean, with and with Kark, we see like he he literally ends up going on a journey to prove this wild theory because he wants back his lucky thumb. Yeah, and and, and it pay it pays off for him, but it's not doesn't make it a, a behavior that I would think the rest of us would want to yeah. model. Well, what's uh, funny if we is we can avoid it. It pays off for him in the short term 
and then he basically gets killed for being a heretic. <laughs> you know, he gets back that lucky thumb, but then you know, like the line in the 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 Commander Legends is this basically like it was short lived. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, oddly enough, that kind of takes us to the point where we're we're talking about that. So, do do we have more we want to talk about in the story of of Quark, of Quark and and this thing? Otherwise, that seems like what would have been a, a nice seamless transition that I've now stomped all over. Yeah, let's just move I, on then. We can yeah, go back to Quark I, I if just, we need I, to. I, I like the idea that a kind of cult forms in his memory. Because there's a very sort of Las Vegasy feel to this. Like I, you can absolutely imagine, like this cult based around the guy who got really, really lucky. <sighs> Except for the part where he didn't. Right. See, but now, that's not the part people remember. Now I'm even more upset about the Phyrexian invasion. We could have had uh, Quirk-inspired Las Vegas on Mirrodin if it wasn't <laughs> for those darned Phyrexians. So, so um, back in. 2019 at uh, Magic Fest Las Vegas, uh, Carolyn Arnold, who's a, who's a wonderful cosplayer, uh, did her uh, uh, Jace uh, Elvis. Jelvis Presley cosplay, yeah. her Jace Elvis cosplay, <laughs> uh, to kind of put a Las Vegas uh, spin on some of the the Planeswalkers, and it's a fantastic cosplay, and, and people should absolutely check it out. Um, and I, we were talking about this beforehand, and I joked that the next obvious step was to do uh, Karn Liberacid. <laughs> so there's there's still a chance to get that even despite the or in this case because of the phyrexian invasion you could still get that las vegas uh crossover there on mirrodin well and who knows at that point that maybe clark does have a, a cult around him you know what and but now that in I, the desert it was uh now that i think about it though the the handful of of free mirrors are taking shelter with uh um Urabrask, the the red Mm-hmm. Phyrexian Praetor, so maybe they will establish, you know, Las Vegas in exile. And and coin flipping in red has been coin flipping in magic has been almost exclusively colored and flavored as a red ability. I was actually looking yeah. this up the other day in preparation for the show. And of the there's fifty-eight cards in Black Border Magic that say flip a coin on them, and eleven of them are colorless and forty-five of uh, excuse me, eleven uh I'm getting the numbers wrong in my head. Uh, but the the point is that like there are only two uh, coin flip cards that aren't either colorless or have red in their color identity. It's It's been flavored as a very red ability. Yeah, I mean, and, and it makes sense. And even in the silver bordered world, we get kind of dice rolling uh, because that was more of a mechanic that they used for um, starting even with unglued. But, you know, we have like Goblin Tutor is rolling a dice and mm-hmm. to get an effect. And there's Goblin Bookie. Um, you know, there's a lot of even outside of the blackboard world. This is really a, a red ability, the randomness yeah. or kind of yeah. the, well, it's the, yeah. Related it to sort of chaos. The, and, yeah, exactly. It, it fits with the chaos stuff. It, yeah, that's I a mean, little more red. <laughs> I mean, red, red's quintessential tutor is just called gamble. Yeah. That's, that's a very good point. <laughs> So, yeah, so we, we wanted to talk a little bit about, so the, like I said, Alex and Joe previously talked about the gambler's fallacy. Um, and at least I was not able to kind of be on that episode. And then Orkish approached us because he had kind of heard that episode and kind of had some thoughts on it and kind of wanted to expand a little bit. And now that we've had this more information on Kark, I actually think it it fits even better. That was so, a polite way of saying that I wanted to nerd about this for several hours. That was a yeah, really which, you know, we're, polite yeah. way to introduce it. Yeah, I, I'm trying to be polite because you are a guest. 
<laughs> you should see how poorly we treat people like Chase when they're actually a host at this point. You don't want to get to that status. <laughs> so do you want to talk a little bit about just orcish kind of like what the gambler's fallacy is? And I'll, I'll describe the gambler's fallacy. Um, I'll try to do it kind of non-technically. The gambler's fallacy is the notion that the outcome of future random events is influenced by the outcome of previous random events. Um, and so the classic example of this is imagine that you're flipping a coin um, and you flip a coin five times and it comes up heads five times in a row. And you're sitting there thinking to yourself, well, what are the, what are the odds of that? Um, and maybe even sit down and you do a little math and you realize that it's, you know, one in 32 are the chances of flipping a coin and having it come up heads five times in a row. And so you think to yourself, well, obviously the next flip has got to be tails. Obviously it's got to be tails. We've had too many heads in a row. It has to be tails. Or at the very least you think you have, even if you don't think it, you have this feeling that the next flip is more likely to be a tails because you understand at a basic level, the idea that a coin flip should come up heads and tails roughly 50% of the time for each. And so since we've had so many heads, something in the universe has to happen to balance this out. And so therefore, it is more likely next that we're going to get a tails. And we'll see that. So again, going back to, I mean, casinos are wonderful examples for all of this because mm -hmm. casinos are essentially probability engines that are designed to take advantage of human misperceptions about probability and statistics in yeah. order to extract money. And so anyone who's been to, you know, if you've been to Magic Fest Las Vegas, if you've been to one of the casinos there, you'll have noticed that in a fairly new innovation, I'm, you know, probably 10, 20 years old at this point, but in the, in the realm of casino gambling, a fairly new innovation, roulette tables will have an LED display next to the table now that shows the last series of numbers which have come up on the wheel. Oh, mm -hmm. wow. Yeah. So, they so there'll, there'll be... Like You'll yeah, there'll be the a color, screen there that's the number. Yep. That's incredible. And the reason that they put that up there is because it preys on the gambler's fallacy that if I'm walking past the roulette table and I see that the last four spins have all been black, there's that little instinct in my lizard brain that goes, well, it's got to be red next. And they've found that displaying this information increases the amount that people will bet on roulette. And that's why those, those LED panels are there. You know, ch casinos are not charities. They wouldn't be putting those LED panels up if they weren't making them money. Yeah. And, and it, it, yeah, please go ahead. It's just a, a side thing about roulette that I think is, is fascinating because I don't know, when I was young, I used to just watch travel channel things and they talked about Vegas. As one does. Uh, <laughs> but one of the things I, uh, I, I, it would talk about relatively new. Uh, it, this was probably a hundred years ago at this point, but the, the, the green circles, the, the yeah, zero, adding zero, zero and double zero. They added those two because otherwise black and red were a perfect 50, 50 bet. And the house needs to make sure that it's never a perfect 50, 50 yep. bet for them. Yep. Yeah. It's, it's, it's basically the idea that they, they don't need to have a huge advantage for it to be profitable. Yeah, they because, can just grind out a very I mean, small advantage over time because that is the, the it, idea of the probability. It's the economy yeah. of scales, in essence. They know enough people are going to come through and put enough money down that they will make out eventually. And and it brings us to the other piece here, which is super important in understanding the gambler's fallacy, which is what statisticians call the law of large numbers, which is the idea that as you increase a sample size. So imagine you're flipping a coin again. 
in a small sample, which in the case of a coin flip could be, you know, dozens, even hundreds of flips, you should, we're going to always see random variation. You'll get runs of a bunch of heads in a row, a bunch of tails in a row. But if you keep flipping that coin, the larger that sample size gets, the universe doesn't actively correct out previous irregularities. But what happens is that over time, the law of large numbers prevails, and the average result for that coin converges asymptotically on the expected outcome. So over time, the average result will converge towards 50% for one for heads, 50% for tails. That's what the law of large numbers tells us. And the, the reason that the gambler's fallacy is sort of so insidious and so wired into our brains is that we understand the piece of probability that says the coin should come up heads 50% of the time. We get that. And that's what we think about. But what we miss is that the way that operates with the law of large numbers is not that if I get 10 heads at the beginning, there's no force in the universe that says, okay, well, you need to get 10 more tails later so that it evens out to 50-50. The coin doesn't have memory. And that's kind of the easiest way to sort of correct myself, I find, about the gambler's fallacy is to remember. A coin doesn't have a memory. A die doesn't have a memory. The coin has no idea what the previous flip was, and it's not trying to fix previous flips. The reason that the law of large numbers prevails is that over time, those blips get overwhelmed by the rest of the sample. It's not that they're ever canceled out actively. It's just that they disappear into the data. Yeah, and, I mean, this is the whole concept behind statistics is we're not yeah. trying to look at – you know, this is why it becomes difficult if you're looking at rare phenomenon or you're looking at things that have very small sample sizes. So one thing I can talk about just from a psychology standpoint is trying to predict something like suicide or violence is very difficult to do because the actual amount of events where you would have data on is not really at a high enough power that you can make any predictive ability. You don't have kind of enough because you, you're, you're really, you need that, that law of large numbers to be able to find patterns that are actually meaningful. I mean, in a really boring, mundane example of, of kind of talking about this in numbers, like I used to, not the position I'm in now, but several years ago, I used to work in the supply department at my, my job. And um, I ordered, I, I did all the inventory management for kind of one half of our line, our business. And in order to save, because we would be throwing, you know, we'd order applications and we had brochures and different pieces. They kept trying to like have us order smaller and smaller windows of of number of of, of inventory. But I had to like try to explain to them like thirty days worth of inventory is a small enough window that random variation is going to make sure that I never get an accurate count. <laughs> and trying to explain that to people didn't. It never quite sunk through, and so I just always ordered six weeks' worth and didn't tell them and uh, didn't run out of stuff. <laughs> I mean, as, as humans, we're prisoners of our own experiences, and in a very w real way, the human experience is a sequence of small samples, mm -hmm. and that, that's the world that we live in, and that's our frame for reference. And I, I kind of want to take a second to give a shout-out to uh, an, an obscure historical figure who who comes up in this subject, uh, who is a mathematician named John Edmund Carrick, who is a uh, British mathematician uh, from South Africa who was in Copenhagen in 1940 uh, when the Nazis invaded Denmark. And because he was a scientist, he was a mathematician, he ended up being interned for the rest of World War II. 
And what he decided to use his time to do while he was in this, this internment camp was he conducted empirical experiments on probability. And one of the things he did while he was in his internment camp was he flipped a coin 10,000 times and recorded all the outcomes of the coin flips. <laughs> I mean, that's got some, you know, like, give you something to focus on your in yeah. internment. I mean, like, that, that yeah. And, and so essentially, he, w he was like, what am I going to do with my time? I'm going to test the law of large numbers. <laughs> and so he flipped he flipped a coin 10,000 times and we actually you know he wrote a book about this we have his data and we can tell you that he flipped a coin 10,000 times and he got 5,067 heads out of his 10,000 flips which it puts seems him pretty close to 50-50. It it puts him just about <laughs> one standard deviation away from the mean. Um yeah. Which and is you know acceptable within kind of what you look at for a, a normal curve, you know, yeah. you, you you don't talk about rare events or things being i mean this is why we set things at it you know when we're trying to make cutoffs we're, we're usually looking at two and a half standard deviations yep. or more i mean you're really trying to make sure things are out on the tail end of a curve and and in an example of what i consider gross overachieving he then uh, made a biased coin um they took a piece of uh, wood and they put lead on one side to make so that the weight wasn't evenly distributed and he flipped his biased coin and proved that uh, asymptotically, the percentage on that coin converged at about seventy percent in favor of the biased side. So, I, I what you, I heard you said because you gave us his name, John Edmund Carrick, Carrick Clark. Yeah. You're saying that he was the inspiration. <laughs> oh wow! Okay, so that's if, what you're saying. That's if, what we're if, right if that now. Was the, true. We're putting this out in the true, universe. I'm doing. You can't see that I'm doing the chef's kiss thing. Um, but even <laughs> if it's not true, if like. Gavin wanted to just pretend that it was, I would accept that and I wouldn't ask questions. About it. <laughs> so Gavin, if you're hearing this, you yeah. know, we're okay with this being canon at this point. I, I would not be like, show me the paper trail for this. I would just take it and, and run with it. <laughs> well, and so this leads us into kind of talking about this idea that, so where I kind of, when I wasn't able to be on last time, one of the things that I really wanted to talk about was this idea of kind of humans wanting to find patterns. You mean you, you want mm -hmm. to kind of explain, I mean, that's just how brains work. You're trying to explain the data that you're getting. And when you're dealing with small sample sizes, your brain doesn't care about that. It's trying to find some sort of connection. It is literally trying to understand the world. I mean, this is even going back to the idea of kind of that there's some stuff with the neuroscience of like humans act, acting under like Bayesian principles. So wanting a normal curve. Mm -hmm. And there is this idea that you're trying to make a pattern. You're trying to find it. And so even when it's not there, like you said, the idea of, I like the one that you talked about the five coin flips in a row and what's the odd of the next one coming up heads. It's, it's one out of two because yeah. It is a singular event. Yes, it is rare to come up six in a row, and that's where you can look at kind of, well, how likely was that to happen? But you can't do that until after the sixth coin is flipped, and the next one is still one out of two. So I'm going to jump ahead just a little bit in our show notes because I think that's a good spot to talk about. Um, something I want to bring from the last episode, which Joe brought up and I hadn't heard of, but this was a uh, – talking about randomness and talking about the gambler's fallacy. Um, and this, I think, historically was one of the first places where people like really examined it. Uh, was it 1913 at the Monte Carlo Casino, where a roulette ball fell on black 26 times in a row? 
Yep. And because of that, like you had this this whole stretch, and I, I I'd be curious. I should see if I, I this is something I really kind of want to re- research a little more myself. But at, at some point, like people started betting on red because you know lost millions and millions of francs betting on red because they assume like it has to be red at some point. It has to be red. Yeah. I mean, and eventually it was on the 27th roll would have been not black, but still these, every single roll had the same odds, but that's not how people saw it because they were building that history. Yep. And, and to, to sort of borrow a phrase from finance, the, the problem at the end of the day is that the market can stay irrational for longer than the gambler can stay solvent. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and yeah, yeah, I, I, it, it's this is the thing is that as human beings, we have an extremely skewed perception of what we think randomness randomness looks like. We think that randomness is smooth. Mm-hmm. We think that all the events in a random series should come out at roughly the same percentage all the time. Um, you know, there shouldn't be big chunks. There shouldn't be big runs one way or another. When in reality, randomness is very lumpy. Yeah. Because it's a rant that that's literally what randomness is. You get streaks, you get runs. Um, kind of imagine like imagine like if you're looking at a smooth surface, like a polished metal surface, it looks very smooth. But if you could see that same surface under extreme micro, micro extreme magnification, like if you look at that same surface with a microscope, it's covered in bumps and ridges. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the way we can think about randomness and the way we can think about the law of large numbers is that from the large perspective, random events seem very smooth. But when you look at them at a, in a small sample, you see bumps, you see dips, you see streaks and runs. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a exercise, which I know statistics professors are very fond of. Um, and I know this because I had a statistics professor who would do this with his classes, um, where you can ask people to do one of two things based on a random assignment. Either flip a coin 200 times and record the outcomes of those coin flips, or pretend that you flipped a coin 200 times and write down what you think a random sequence of 200 coin flips would look like. And if you ask people to do that, you can then with very high accuracy, um, and there's actually a paper about this that, that a professor wrote that you can look at. And he essentially what he said is with about 85% accuracy, I can sort these outcomes into two piles. I can pick the genuine coin flips from the the fake coin flips with about 85% accuracy using only one tool, which is to look at the list, look at the results and find the longest streak. Because if you actually flip a coin 200 times, the median longest streak is about seven. So you should expect more often than not that you're going to find a streak somewhere in that, in that data of seven heads in a row or seven tails in a row. People don't don't do that when they're trying to produce what they think a random outcome looks like. People seldom go more than five heads in a row or five tails in a row, because to them, that starts to look not random. That looks like something is wrong, but that's what randomness actually looks like. It's very lumpy. Mm -hmm. And going back to John and McCarrick for a second, if anyone wants to, you can actually go on Wikipedia. You can see an excerpt of his data. They have 2000 of his coin flips. And if you want to, you can look at that and you'll find that his longest streak in those 2,000 coin flips is 12 heads in a row. 
there's a streak where he gets 12 heads in a row in what is, you know, again, flipping a, a fair coin, which in the long run turns out to be within one standard deviation of what you would expect, you know, 5,067 heads out of 10,000 flips. But he does have a streak in there where he gets head 12 times in a row. And the odds of if you just sat down and flipped a coin 12 times, the odds of getting 12 heads in a row is less than one in 4,000. But those sorts of streaks will happen naturally as part of random sequences. And like Hobbes said, as humans, we see those and we want to perceive that those are non-random events. We want to read patterns in there. There's actually a term for this. It's called the clustering illusion, where we see these sorts of clusters in small random samples and we think that they indicate that something non-random is happening. And again, for people who want to, you can go on Wikipedia, you can look up the clustering illusion and there's actually, you can watch a little animation that shows 10,000 dots being randomly placed on a grid. And you, even, if you're, even though you know that you're literally looking at an example of the clustering illusion, as those dots start to come in, you notice that you start to notice clusters. There are places where there are more dots than in other places. They're not evenly distributed throughout the grid. And you start to think, well, why are there so many dots there? But that's, that's just the way that we perceive these events. We look for patterns and we look for clusters, but the fact that they exist doesn't mean that they're non-random. And that's our show for today. You can find the host on Twitter. HobbsQ can be found at HobbsQ. And Alex Newman can be found at Mel underscore Chronicler. Send any questions, comments, thoughts, hopes, and dreams to at GoblinLorePod on Twitter or email us at GoblinLorePodcast at gmail.com. If you want to support your friendly neighborhood gobsmug, the cast can be found at Patreon.com slash GoblinLorePod. Opening and closing music by VinderGotten who can be found on Twitter at Vindergotten or online at vindergotten.bandcamp.com. Logo art by Steven Raphael, who can be found on Twitter at Steve Raphael. Goblin Lore is proud to be presented by Tipsters of the Coast as part of their growing Vorthos content, as well as magic content of all kinds. Check them out on Twitter at HipstersMTG or online at hipstersofthecoast.com. Thank you all for listening. And remember, goblins like snowflakes, are only dangerous in numbers.